I think all of us are comfortable with vaginal cytotec, misoprostol, right? We all use that at time of labor induction for cervical ripening. I would guess that it'd be hard to find someone who hasn't used cytotec for that indication. But here's a clinical question that you may not have thought of. Is there a maximal amount of intravaginal cytotec that can be used? I don't mean per application. We all get that that's 25 or 50 micrograms. But is there a total cumulative dose? Is that 150? Is it 200? Is it 300 micrograms? Or is there a maximum amount of time after which we should say, I think we need to stop this misoprostol trial? Does that exist? Oh, it's a good question, and the answer is not as easy as you would think. So in this episode, we're going to cover the Bishop score. We're going to talk about a new agent that's been investigated for cervical ripening that's nowhere close to mainstream, but it's interesting what researchers are trying to put out to rival Cytotec. We're going to talk about some strategies of how to score that tablet uh, to get that 25 microgram because that's an issue. And then we're going to answer the main question. Is there a maximum cumulative dose? Now, I know that your hospital may have one in your policy and procedures, but it may not be what's in the hospital's policy and procedures just down the road. And I'm going to tell you why there's a lot of heterogeneity in this in this episode. So let's cover max misoprostol, yes or no. Let's do that now. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Back in 1964, Bishop developed a cervical scoring system to predict the inducibility of the uterus by evaluating the position of the cervix as it relates to the vagina, the cervical consistency, its dilation, effacement, and station of the presenting part. He found that those with unfavorable scores defined as under 6 would benefit from pre-induction cervical treatment. In general, there are two main categories of cervical ripening. There's mechanical methods, and of course, what we're talking about here, pharmacological methods. Of the pharmacological methods, prostaglandins, either the E1 or the E2 variety, are the agents of choice. The E1 prostaglandin for cervical ripening is, of course, misoprostol. The brand name is Cytotec. Misoprostol can be administered by various routes, either buccal, which is in the cheek, oral, rectal, sublingual, and vaginal. The most commonly used is the vaginal route of administration, and that's for cervical ripening and induction of labor. Now, as a side note, there is interest in developing new pharmacological agents for cervical ripening, and the chief contender seems to be a nitric oxide donor agent called isosorbide mononitrate. Although there is early evidence that this is non-inferior to Cytotec, either as a standalone agent or used as an adjuvant together with misoprostol, we're still very early on in the data accumulation stage for this medication to be considered mainstream. 
Plus, Cytotec is cheap, we've got lots of data regarding its safety, and it's been used now for close to 30 or 40 years. With vaginal administration of misoprostol, levels of the medication appear quickly in the maternal system, and the concentration of misoprostol reaches a peak plasma concentration after 70 to 80 minutes, and then it decreases. But levels of the medication are still detectable up to six hours post-administration. Systematic reviews have concluded that vaginal misoprostol is more effective than vaginal denoprostone, the E1 analog, and they have similar safety profiles. In ACOG's practice bullet number 107, the college states, quote, one quarter of an unscored 100 microgram tablet, approximately 25 micrograms, of misoprostol should be considered as the initial dose of cervical ripening and labor induction. The frequency of administration should not be more than every three to six hours. In addition, oxytocin should not be administered less than four hours after the last misoprostol dose. Misoprostol in higher dosages, 50 micrograms every six hours, may be appropriate in some situations, although higher doses are associated with an increased risk of certain complications, including uterine tachycystole with fetal heart rate decelerations. End quote. All right, everybody gets the typical dosage per application and the dosing interval, 25 to 50 mics, 3 to 6 hours. We get that. But notice what the college doesn't give you. It doesn't give you a maximum amount of time to use it, nor does it give you a maximum dosage. And that's exactly what we're covering here. See, I told you it's a good question. So of the two questions, is there a time limit and is there a dose limit? The easier to answer is the one regarding time. So let's do that first. Let's tackle the time issue, the maximal amount of time for Cytotec use. In other words, is it 12 hours? Is it 24? Is it 36 hours? In a <clears throat> Let's tackle the time issue first, because that's easier to explain rather than the maximum cumulative dose. All right, time duration is super easy because right now there's no evidence-based time cutoff that prohibits continued efforts at cervical ripening with the same or a different method when the cervix remains unfavorable. Now, of course, considering the patient's wishes and the original reason for induction are key here. So put this in perspective, right? Remember, this is an otherwise low-risk elective induction at 39 weeks. Then it's best to stop the induction after a certain amount of pre-degreed time, like 18 or 24 hours, to let the uterus reset its receptors. However, if the induction is for a medical necessity, uh, let's say severe preeclampsia at term or concern for HELP syndrome, then it's all right to continue the induction beyond what you and the patient and your policy has determined to be the maximal amount by time. But to be very clear, there is no cutoff where you would say, oh, we've used uh, you know, 28 hours of side attack uh, and we've got to cut it off. There is no evidence-based consensus for what that time looks like. So it defaults, once again, to what you have discussed with your patient and what is typical policy and procedures on your unit. And maybe that is part of your PMP. So if someone ever asks you, what's the maximum amount of time to use Cytotec? There isn't one. 
But remember, time limit and best practice are two different things. Just because there's no time limit doesn't necessarily mean that you should keep going if there's no response to the medication by the patient. In other words, if you've done 24 hours of Sadatec and the patient remains at one centimeter, then you should probably move on to something else. It doesn't make sense uh, that you continue and there's no response to that medication. Perhaps move on to a mechanical method, either membrane stripping or something like the Cook cervical uh, balloon. So does that make sense? Even though there's no time limit, that doesn't mean you can just keep going without reassessment. This requires a reassessment and a rediscussion with the patient for shared decision-making, a reevaluation of the original reason for the induction, and then consideration of moving on to another agent if there's no response to that first trial of misoprostol. Okay, so remember that there's two maximums when we're talking about Cytotec. Maximum time allowed, which there really isn't, and then maximal dosage, cumulative dose, and that's the focus of this episode. Regarding the maximum allowable dosage, remember that it's different for this E1 analog than it is for denoprostone, the E2 analog. Take, for example, the use of the intracervical denoprostone gel, uh, like Prepadil. The manufacturer recommends a maximum cumulative dose of 1.5 milligrams of denoprostone. That's three doses or 7.5 mLs of the gel within a 24-hour period. All right. So there is definitely a maximum amount dosage cumulative that you can use for the E2 analog denoprostone. That's Prepadil, the gel that goes into the cervix within 24 hours. But Unlike that maximum dosage for the E2 analog, there is no universally accepted maximum cumulative dose for intravaginal Cytotec. Before I cover some of the rather surprising data that's out there for Cytotec, because there's some really bizarre protocols out there. We get so used to 25 or 50 micrograms in the vagina every three to six hours, but that's not uniform. I have found in the literature, some have used a loading dose. So we give a 50 microgram first in the vagina, and then three hours later, a 25. Some have used a 100 microgram as a single-time dose. Uh, some uh, load with a 100 and then go back to a 25 mic. There's no one universal dosing regimen for misoprostol. And it, the data, when we talk about the maximum cumulative dose, is just as confusing. But we're going to get into that, and we're going to make it very clear in this episode. But before I do that, let's cover some basic science and some basic facts about Cytotec that is not controversial. Okay, this is very clear. So I want to cover the mechanism of action, how this works, uh, and then whether this thing is FDA approved or not. Because there's a lot of confusion out there, and we need to make the record straight right now. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. All right, misoprostol. Been around for a long time. We all know it has uterotonic effects, okay? And that's directly a result of the prostaglandin binding to the smooth muscle cells in the uterus, the, the myometrial cells. We get that. 
But cervical remodeling for ripening is a little different because prostaglandins cause a degradation of the collagen that's in the connective tissue of the stroma. And there's a reduction in cervical tone from that that leads to a cervical remodeling and causes increase in gap junctions and calcium influx. So it's much more active at the cervix, if you will, than it is on the myometra cell. All to say it works on the uterus itself and, of course, on the cervical tissue. Its uterotonic properties are also helpful to help control postpartum bleeding, which is why it's part of the algorithm for PPH. The earliest studies of misoprostol use in cervical ripening and labor induction were done by South American investigators who reported their experience using intravaginal misoprostol. That was published in The Lancet back in 1992. Now, it's easy for us to read that and to hear that and go, wow, 1992, okay, that's interesting. But we got to put this into context. The FDA had just approved that medication for a completely unrelated indication in 1988. So here we are four years later, right? Cytotec is approved for prevention of gastric ulcers with NSAID use. And here come these guys in South America and they're like, hey, I think this thing should be able to induce labor. That's pretty amazing. All right. That's pretty bold. (laughs) So not only was it off label, but it was totally experimental at that time. And of course, they have changed the world of obstetrics. I think that's remarkable. Let's circle back there for just a minute because I don't want to lose that fact that its primary and continued indication, its only indication even today, is for the prevention of peptic ulcer disease, of gastric ulcers, in patients that are on NSAIDs. But in 2002, so 1988 was the original indication, and in 1992, the drug label changed for it because before 2002, there was a black box warning that said that under no circumstances should pregnant women take this because it can lead to miscarriage. Of course, that's one of the known uses of it now. Uh, And it can cause labor. Again, that's exactly what we wanted to do. But it was a black box warning up until 2002. Now, to be clear, in 2002, the FDA did not approve it for labor induction, nor did they approve it for miscarriage therapy. But they took away that black box label stating that it is a known off-label use, uh, but it should still be respected and it carries some warnings in terms of uterine rupture and those that have had previous uterine surgery. So to be clear, yes, the FDA basically gives it a nod, but it never issued the formal approval for it. So if somebody says, oh, yeah, the FDA has indicated it's okay for that. No, no, no. It's not FDA approved for labor induction or cervical ripening. They've just took away the black box warning. And the contraindication was changed to say that in those women that are taking NSAIDs and pregnant, first of all, that's another issue in and of itself. um, In those patients who are pregnant uh, and taking NSAIDs appropriately, that this medication should not be used. So they stuck to the contraindication to its original label indication. All right. So all to say is Cytotec FDA approved for labor induction and cervical ripening. No, but the FDA did remove its specific warning for use for those indications. Okay, so just to be clear, there's only one true indication, FDA approval for Cytotec, misoprostol, and that's prevention of gastric ulcer disease in patients who are using NSAIDs. Fine. 
but it did give the nod to use it in labor and for miscarriage treatment. However, this labeling does not contain any claims regarding the efficacy or safety of misoprostol, nor does it stipulate dosage, dosage intervals, or maximum allowable dosages. All right, so y'all get that. So it says, hey, I'm not, you can use it, but I'm not going to tell you how much to use, what the time uh, interval is, and I'm not going to tell you what your cumulative dose to use is. I'm out of that game. So that's the FDA stance, but at least they did take away that black box warning. So did you put that together yet? The FDA didn't give a maximal dosage cumulative, nor did ACOG. If you go back to that practice bulletin that we referenced earlier, they talk about the doses per use and the time intervals, but they don't say use up to a certain amount. Well, you, as you could guess, the reason they don't give you that maximal number is because the data is really everywhere. It's very heterogeneous, and that's what we're going to cover now. We're going to take a look at the different studies that have published on different maximal dosages of cumulative cytotec uh, used vaginally for cervical ripening. And again, it gets pretty interesting, but all to say there is not one number. So if your hospital uses a maximum of 200 micrograms, fantastic, adhere to your protocol. But if somebody says, hey, I think we're almost there. We're almost crossing that Bishop score of eight. Uh, I think I need to give one more dose, but it would be going above our cutoff limit of 200. Know that that's okay. There's evidence for that because some hospitals use 300 micrograms. Some have actually used and published 600 micrograms. I think that's a lot. <laughs> but the idea is there is not one maximal dosage cumulatively. So I want to get into that next. According to a meta-analysis published in 2015, the 50 microgram dose vaginally was more effective than the 25 microgram dose. In other words, it resulted in a higher chance of birth after a single dose and of delivery within 24 hours, and it was associated with less chance of oxytocin use. But the 25 microgram dose resulted in lower rates of tachycystole, cesarean birth for a non-reassuring fetal heart rate, neonatal intensive care unit admissions, and meconium passage. That meta-analysis was published in BJOG by McMaster and also Andrew Connitz. One of the main reasons that there's been experts advocating for the 50 microgram dose over the 25 microgram dose, not only is that higher chance of vaginal delivery success with a trade-off of possibly some fetal heart rate issues and tachycystole, which we can rescue with a shot of terbutaline, uh, but another reason to favor the 50 microgram dose is that we have to score that tablet right now in the U.S. into fourth to try to get a 25 microgram dose. But as stated in the AO1 guideline for cervical ripening and labor induction, quote, because the 100 microgram tablet is not scored, there is no assurance that the medication is uniformly dispersed throughout the tablet. It is possible that one fourth of a tablet may contain more or less than the 25 micrograms of medication. The hospital pharmacist should score the tablet uniformly before administration, end quote. Now, the motive for having the pharmacist score the tablet rather than us scoring it in labor and delivery is well understood. But there's still no guarantee that the pharmacist is going to do any better than we are at destroying the tablet. Now, let me tell you, and I can speak for myself, that I've been at the bedside trying to score that little tablet with a pill cutter, and I end up with three pieces of tablet and then some leftover powder. I mean, it just happens. So the whole take-home message is when we score a tablet that's 100 micrograms into fourths, there's no real reassurance that 
what the patient is getting is actually 25 micrograms. That's why it's okay to have some, some give, some leeway here because they may very well be getting an inert part of the medication. Now, unfortunately, we don't have the 25 microgram tablet in the U.S. Now, I know that we have an international audience and we appreciate that. We love that. But it's not the same for everyone. All right, let me explain what I mean by that. So for our listeners in the UK, uh, I understand that there are licensed preparations of misoprostol 25 micrograms for either oral or vaginal use uh, for labor induction and cervical ripening. That's fantastic. By the way, I found that through one of the NICE bulletins. And not nice, like, oh, it's so nice. But the NICE bulletins that was published out of the British Journal of Obstetrics and Gynecology, or BJOG. And that title is Evaluating Misoprostol and Mechanical Methods for Induction of Labor. That's Scientific Impact Paper Number 68 from April 2022. All to say, that's fantastic. If they have a standardized tablet of 25 mics, we know that the patient there in the UK is getting 25 mics. But in the US, for those of you that are not part of, of the United States, uh, we have to score the tablet. So we that little tablet is kind of, you know, kind of crumbles and we give them, who knows, maybe 35 micrograms, maybe 20 micrograms, because it's not cut into perfect fourths. All to say, whatever we're given to a patient we think is 25 micrograms, but we, we should really be saying when we dictate and put it into our notes, we scored uh, the tablet, a 100 microgram tablet, and we placed a fourth of that in the vagina because the truth is we don't know if it's 25 micrograms or not. And that's one of the reasons that in the U.S. there are some experts that call for a 50 micrograms because we're much more likely to give a standard dose by cutting the pill in half than scoring it ourselves into fourths. Okay, fine. 25 or 50 micrograms dose every three to six hours. Got that. But we still haven't answered the question about cumulative dose. Well, for that, we can go back to one of the first early meta-analyses on the subject, uh, which was using vaginal misoprostol for labor induction. That goes back to 1997 from the Green Journal. This was published by Luis Sanchez Ramos and Andrew Connitz and others. These authors took eight randomized trials using misoprostol as vaginal medication for either cervical ripening or labor induction, and that included in the final analysis about 1,000 patients. Now, as a testimony to the variation in practice, some studies used 25 micrograms as frequently as every two hours. Others used a single tablet of 100 micrograms. But here's what's even more interesting. The authors concluded that the maximum allowances used varied at all the different studies. In other words, some used a maximum cumulative dose of 50 micrograms, that's two applications of 25 mics, to one publication that used a maximum of 600 micrograms. And yes, the authors found, just as we've already discussed, that 50 micrograms dosed at regular intervals seems to be much more effective than the 25 microgram. But they noted that there was so much heterogeneity in these studies because each one used a different cumulative maximal dose. So the author said basically, hey, whatever works for you, that's great. But there's not enough evidence-based data to say that 200 is any safer than 300 and that 300 is any safer than 350 or 400. Again, there was only one publication that used a maximal dose of up to 600 micrograms. I don't recommend that because at some point it's just not effective anymore. But the whole point being made is that there is not a one cumulative maximum dose in the literature. 
literature. There's no evidence-based guidelines for that. So that's the same truth that we just talked about for the time duration. But the time duration is easy. There's no set time. That's the end of that. But with dosages, even though there's no cumulative maximal dose uniformly agreed upon, there's so much variance in this. So the idea is stick with what your hospital labor and delivery policy is your procedures and policies, your PMPs, but just know that that's not a hard and fast rule. That may be just what your institution came up with. Uh, could be by natural vote or majority vote, but it doesn't necessarily mean that's what other hospitals are doing. Since that publication in 1997, others have stated the exact same thing. The short of it is after a certain amount of misoprostol, anywhere from 200 to 300 micrograms total cumulative dose, if there's no increase in cervical dilation, if there's no increase in the Bishop score, then it's best to move on. It's just not working. So remember, while there's no set universal time frame for misoprostol for which you have to quit, the same holds true for maximum cumulative dose. And if it's it's not responsive after a certain number of medications, in general, about four to six dosages, and consider moving on. But remember, it's not just the number of dosages used, it's the amount of medication per dose and that total maximal amount that, according to best evidence, if there's no cervical progress in Bishop score after 200 to a maximum of 300 micrograms, then it's likely no longer effective. Podcast family, before we say we're done, send me a message on Facebook. Let me know what your policy and procedures is in labor and delivery for vaginal misoprostol. Is there a maximum dosage used? Do you use the 25 micrograms or do you use the 50? Just like to collect some info and see what you all are doing. Anyway, we're thankful for you and I hope you found this information helpful. And as always, we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. <laughs>